On this episode, roadies, team and training, the pro peloton, and power meters. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to another episode of the Almost There Adventure Podcast. We are very excited today to have Janelle Spilka with us. She's a former pro cyclist, a coach, and a live cycling ambassador. Janelle, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, team, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be able to have this conversation, albeit remotely. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So me, I, I did race professionally for about a decade on the road, uh, came into it from a wild, uh, change of career, uh, path. So like very circuitous path. Um, but I've always been an outdoor adventure person. Um, and, uh, and it just, uh, yeah. And always been into sport, but never thought I'd be doing it at the professional level. Um, retired from racing in 2015 and since then have been running a coaching business where I coach individuals. And through that process, I've also discovered that what I really love to do is to uh, ride with lots of people and help build community while on the bike. Um, So I started running cycling camps uh, in 2015 and COVID has turned that completely on its head. um, But uh, I'm still riding my bike and adventuring a lot and trying to figure it all out. Um, So going way back to the beginning, did I read somewhere that you were part of team and training? Oh, yes. Yes. I I got my start on the bike through team and training. Are any other team and training? um, Me too. Like I got my start in triathlon and bike and team and training too. For for running. Yeah. I I did my first marathon with team and training. Oh, see how cool. Wait, Jason, what's what what happened with you? Yeah, no, I just I just did it on my own. <laughs> I've always done it on my own. I, I, yeah, I did some early cycling stuff in like the when I was really young and like flirted with racing. But I'm I'm a Sasquatch, so there was yeah. I'm like I'm not going to compete with these guys that are 80 pounds lighter than me. It's just not going to happen. But no, I never did team and training. It seems cool. I see them out everywhere, but I yeah, I kind of just stubbornly trudge along in my in my own thing. For our listeners who don't know what team and training is because we've been mentioning team and training. Um, Team and training was a fundraising arm of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and they would do running events, they would do triathlons, they would do cycling events, and participants would come, get coached, be a part of this amazing team, this amazing atmosphere, and raise money to support uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And so a lot of times um, people had a personal connection, whether it was knowing somebody who'd passed away or knowing somebody who was fighting um, cancer. And so it was actually, it was a, and it was amazing. It was an amazing community of people, just, just really a really powerful experience. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of started doing, you know, things there and then like kind of launched into bigger things. Like my first team in training was a, um, sprint triathlon and eventually I ended up doing an Ironman triathlon. So you sort of like start in these like little, like, I think I could do this and they convince you you can do anything <laughs> which is really great so, so basically um, it's a gateway drug into type 2 fun it is yeah. it, it totally is yes yeah. it is it is it is yeah uh, I think it's it's really cool to you know have four people together and three out of four have done it right and yeah 
I think that speaks volumes to how uh, how great of a program it is. And partly, uh, I was in it for the mission, and partly um, because I just needed something else to do. I think when I moved to San Diego, I had envisioned myself really kind of tapping into the running um, community there because I grew up as a runner and I competed all through college and uh, considered myself a runner. But for some reason, when I got to San Diego, I just wasn't into it. And I was teaching at the time and loved that. And I can really, um, I can really get into things and devote a lot of time and attention to them. And so that's kind of where my attention was. And but I needed to get active and healthy and doing things again. And so team and training through a friend at work kind of came up and decided, okay, this sounds good. And um, I had had a road bike at the time, but barely rode and team and training, you know, between the coaches and the mentors and the community that they build turned out to be the thing that got me into, into the pro ranks, which is, wild but um it, it was an incredible experience did you race domestically did you get a race internationally did you get, go over europe and get in some of the, some of those pelotons as well or were you mostly just uh in the u.s um i i i did get to race in europe a lot uh, starting in my first year so i basically i did team and training in 2006 started racing locally my first local race was 2007 and one of the crazy things was that I actually resigned from my full-time job at a school in San Diego before I ever did my first race. Like I was so sure that I was going to be a pro that I decided I would resign <laughs> before I had even done my first race. So um, crazy or confident, I don't know. Um, but um then, so that was 2007, I started racing and then I got my first pro contract before the end of the season. And that first year racing, it, we were a UCI team. So we were, it was an Olympic year and six out of my eight teammates were going to the Olympics. And so we raced all over the world. Um, it was, it was a for sure a steep learning learning curve that's amazing though that's so cool that you got to do that i'm i'm uh that's it's kind of funny i sort of always someone that dreamed of being like a pro cyclist trapped in the body of a linebacker so i'm pretty <laughs> must have been an amazing uh must have been an amazing experience though to be over there and like what a like a baptism by fire though right i mean because i'm assuming that's like it was like pretty intense i mean if you had only really started riding seriously like a year before and then you're in like serious pro pelotons you know on seriously crappy like cobblestone roads and everything going super fast that, that, that's amazing that must have been incredible yeah i mean i can remember my first uh race there was in germany and it was just two weeks or so before the olympics and i my job was to get to the front get to the front get to the front like you know my teammates and my director just were constantly in my ear telling me that because i was a worker i was either getting bottles or getting to the front to chase things down and uh, on that first day, I was just doing whatever I could to get to the front. And at one point, I got to the front. I had bumped a few people along the way. And a woman came up next to me and said in her German accent, please be careful. And I looked and it was like one of the most incredible riders, former world champion, Olympic medalist. And I'm like, I, I and she was basically telling me, stop bumping into people, ride your bike, bike like you've been here before. Cause if you crash, 
any of us out who are going to the Olympics, you're, you know, this is not going to be good for you. <laughs> I don't know. Some of our, our readers might not be pro cycling fans. You want to kind of just talk about what, it, what the role of a domestique is and what that, what's that, what that means for professional cycling? Sure. So um, while in uh, cycling, there's only one person who crosses the finish line, you know, first, it is a team effort. It's just harder to see. And so there are riders on the team that are the most experienced, most talented, whatever you want to say at, you know, whether they're sprinters or climbers or um, overall, uh, you know, the best on the team. And if you're not that person, then you're the worker. So a domestique is a worker. So whether you literally go and get, you know, bottles for your teammates or you are riding on the front so that they don't have to ride in the wind and they're benefiting from drafting off you. Um, or, I mean, gosh, you, do, you or you're chasing down um, moves when they go off the front of the race or um, anyway, there, I guess we could probably talk for hours about the basics of how the dynamics in a cycling race. But, um, uh, yeah, that's a, you're a worker bee. And basically until you prove how strong you are and how capable you are, um, you, you have to kind of do the, the work of the team and help your teammates win. Um, and, and it's a, it's a good way to learn. It's like, it, it's almost like being in an apprentice role in a lot of ways. What? What was that spark that made you be like, that, like, I love this so much? Was it that like, I love this so much, I want to do it all the time? Or was it, wow, I actually have like some skill and talent here. And I want to, you know, like put that like, I think I can take this really far. Like, what was it that made you so quickly be like, I want to try to go pro? It was a combination of both of those things. One, I think growing up, I was always very competitive I always wanted to do everything. Um, and if I started something new, so whether it was skiing or downhill skiing or hiking in the dead of winter and maybe ice climbing, whatever the adventure type thing was, and this also applied to, you know, academic stuff too, I suppose, or singing or whatever, I, I looked to the people who were doing it best in the world and I kind of aspired to be at that level. And it, I never thought I really had world-class talent for any of these things, but it was still fun to kind of like picture yourself as like the super amazing rad mogul skier or, you know, hucking yourself off 300 foot cliffs. Like I just, that's kind of where my mentality was. And so when I started riding the road bike, I kind of looked at everybody as a pro. So, and you know, just like you said about team and training, it's where people were either doing it for the mission and for the sport, or they were brand new to the sport and it was completely about the mission, right? But in general, these are not professionals, but I kind of looked at everybody as like, whoa, everybody's super pro. Like these coaches, these mentors, they're real, they're like cyclists. And I was fascinated by this idea of learning something new. To me, the bike, it wasn't just, you know, like when you're hiking and doing some sort of crazy challenge or running and really pushing yourself, you, it's just that like there's that internal external battle that you're kind of constantly forcing and pushing yourself and pushing and driving and driving and driving. And with biking, the addition of the bicycle fascinated me because now I had this machine that I had to learn and how to, and I had to figure out how to use it to my advantage. 
And, um, and so I, I, so there was that element to it, but then there was also the Holy smokes. I can see so much in such a short period of time. Like you go out for a four hour ride or something. And I was seeing parts of San Diego County that I had never seen. And people who I was friends with who had lived there their whole lives had never seen. And to me, that was really cool. And then there was the competition side where I was, there were people who were like, Whoa, Janelle, you're, you're pretty good. And they would, you know, kind of drop these, you know, hints or whatever. And I had no idea what that really meant. Um, and I think the final layer for me was that I got connected through team and training. I got connected with a world-class coach, uh, named Arnie Baker, who had written team and training programs for cycling and maybe also added to the run and, and um, triathlon side as well. Um, so he was heavily involved with team and training, but he was also coaching riders in the Tour de France. And he lived like two miles from where I lived. And so I got to get connected with him and then go out and ride with people who had really gone to the Olympics and really were professionals. And so it was kind of this mix of all these things where my funny personality and my competitiveness, and then also having the right people to uh, guide me on this journey. So, yeah. Very cool. And it seems as though, I mean, you mentioned before that you were teaching when you resigned from teaching to get into cycling. And now you mentioned that you're a coach again. Do you want to talk a little bit about your coaching and what, what sort of brought you to where you are now? Yeah. You know, I think because my start in cycling was very much a result of the people who helped me get there. And it was also very social and it was very, it was a lifestyle thing, more of a competition thing, right? That I had this deep appreciation for how much cycling can really change a person's life. Um, And so when I retired, or when I was still racing, my coach, Arnie, he was always basically training me to coach myself. He want you know he had a Socratic method. He you know followed the Socratic method of of education and um, and he also knew that my dad was that way and um, oh I turned out to be that way too and um, so I started coaching while I was still racing but just a couple of athletes here and there and so when I quit I was so ready to stop thinking about myself. Because at the end of the day, when you're a professional athlete, you do a lot of thinking about yourself. It's very inner focused, which is like kind of too much sometimes. <laughs> and so I wanted to, I, I, I still wanted to ride my bike a lot, but I really just wanted to do it for other people. And so I started to add uh, individuals to my coaching uh, business and tried to ride with them as much as possible if they lived in the area and uh, started to build this coaching business that I was modeling after the way that Arnie had coached me, um, which was super old school, you know, like phone calls and riding together in real life. And I think coaching now has transitioned much more to remote kind of coaching, especially because of COVID. But, um, it, but it's, it's been it's been a blast to try to figure that all out. And, um, and for me, again, it's like, it's all about the relationships that you can develop. Right. So I've worked with some of my athletes for years and years now, and I don't coach a ton of people. Um, but I, I, I really enjoy it. 
working with individuals and then, you know, camps too, working with groups. That's super cool. So, so now, like now that we are in COVID and even kind of before that, obviously like power meters, right. Have become a big thing since when you, cause when you started, they were there, but they weren't like really like people were people using them. Did you ever like actually race with a power meter on your bike? Yeah, I was, I'm super, I, I went to, I should mention, I went to school for engineering. So I've got that like, you know, nerdy thing going on too. So yes. Uh, so yeah, but power meters are really helpful when you're, when you're coaching, you kind of to, you can see a lot about what an athlete's doing without ever riding with them. Um, and with these, there's a bunch of different, you know, online training and gaming type programs now that you can even use with coaching and with riding people. So, um, I, I still coach some people who don't have power meters, so you can do it. Um, and, uh, but it's, yeah, it's certainly all this technology has made it a lot easier. But is it as fun, right? I don't know. Yes. No, for sure. <laughs> okay. I, I've got an, uh, the uninformed novice question. What's a power meter? <laughs> Great question. So have you ever um, done any of your adventuring with a heart rate monitor? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you know how heart rate is, a, is, is very much affected by your fatigue level, by altitude, by temperature, by hydration, by all these different factors, right? Right. So, okay. So a power meter is a device that will measure either the torque that you're creating at the cranks. Um, so it, so it, t- and, and then you can convert that to power. So it tells you how much power you're putting out. Um, or, or it'll measure, but with strain gauges that you can use a few, the devices are made a bunch of different ways, but ultimately it tells you how much force you're generating at the, at the pedals, right? With your left leg and your right leg, or it combines it together. The great thing about that, if you imagine like being in the gym and lifting weights and doing step-ups, right? Something like that. And you're, you know, kind of more or less the same weight. And if you're holding a certain amount of weight in your, (laughs) in your hands, you know, whether you can do 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever step-ups, right? Well, the power meter is going to tell you it's, it's that same kind of measure where you will, it, it, it is not, uh, if you're doing a certain amount of power and you're able to hold it for five minutes one day and the next day you can't like, that's, that just, that tells you, okay, yesterday I could today I couldn't. Right. And so it's this, uh, it's this very, um, objective way to measure your fitness and what you're what you're doing at a given moment and it can track you can track it over time um and it it allows me to know if my how my athletes are doing as long as that as long as it's working properly it tells me exactly what they're doing um so if they go climb uh you know a 10 minute climb give or take right and they do that week after week after week. I can see if they can hold higher power numbers on that same climb. I can see if they want to set a PR on that climb. I can see if they went out really, really, really hard and then just faded and barely made it. And we can and we can learn from that. Um, but it's it basically it's a great way to measure what you're doing on the bike. And um, yeah, it, it and it you're the numbers that you hit on every, any given day are always going, you know, the numbers are what they are. Whereas with heart rate, you know, on, if you're at, uh, if it's, <laughs> if it's super cold out your heart rate, you could be working 
really, really hard. And your heart rate's just not going to get to where it is when you're on a normal temperature day, right? It's, you just don't have as much um, blood flow to, to, to those outer muscles to be able to generate as much power, but the power meter will tell you that, you know? So, so, so just out of curiosity, are most of your athletes that you're coaching, like, are they super competitive? Do you have people that just do it like to stay fit or are most of the people that you're coaching, you know, trying to race at some level, but be an amateur or professional? Um, a, a large variety, a wide variety, I would say. So some people are just doing it to stay fit and some people have, um, have raced and, and, and are very, you know, and some people just are very goal oriented and want someone to help them, um, achieve these goals. And, but then I've coached a few, uh, serious racers too, but it, it changes and, uh, which is great. When you were racing, was it purely road cycling? Yeah. So I raced just on the road, um, which was awesome. I loved it. There are people who can try to balance uh, road, cross, mountain, whatever. But for me, starting later in life and going coming up in the sport kind of fast, it uh, meant I really had to manage my time pretty well and, and focus. Um, and, and so, yeah, I focused on road. Um, and then when I retired, then I really started to hit the dirt a lot. <laughs> I, I will say until that last thing you just said, I, it was really nice to have a, a, another roadie on <laughs> Jeff, and, Jeff and Severia keep booking all of these like mountain biker people. And I'm like the one like, you know, roadie, you know, in the conversation. So, so let's just forget that last part you said about hitting the dirt after and pretend that you're, you and I are like roadies. So, so I actually feel included in one of these like cycling interviews. Well, Jason, you're time. editing. So you get yes, to cut that out. I'll cut that part out. <laughs> and so Janelle, I know um, I seen that you've done gravel camp. So when you started, when you say hit the dirt, are you more focused on the gravel riding and then, or mountain biking? And for our listeners, do you want to talk a little bit about what the difference is? Sure. So I, from a coaching perspective, I coach and do more on the gravel side of things. Um, but from a personal perspective, um, I spend a lot of time on my mountain bike, I think, because it's, it's great. I've been very lucky for the past, you know, four years or so three years, especially to live in a place where I can hit the trails really quickly. So if I only have an hour and a half to ride, I would go out on my mountain bike. So what's the difference between mountain and gravel? Um, mountain biking, you have a, you know, flat bar in front and you have suspension sometimes on both the front and the fork and in the rear, um, or, uh, you know, for me personally, I'll just editorial say that more suspension, more better. <laughs> um, um, but anyway, so that's mountain and on the mountain bike, you tend to ride on trails and there's a lot more obstacles, rocks, roots, um, and steep stuff, steep down, kind of crazy. Um, it's awesome. It's like hiking, but on a bicycle. Um, and then gravel is this new segment of cycling that's come out where it's a, it's, it's kind of like a combination of mountain biking and road riding. So the gravel bike looks more like a road bike where it has these drop bars that curve under, but, and there's not much suspension, although depending on the bike company, there's a little bit of suspension here and there, but not really. It's kind of a rigid frame. And, but you run wider tires than you would on the road and you 
and because of the wider tires, you uh, need more clearance in your fork and in your rear triangle. Now I'm starting to get a little too bike techie, but anyway, so yeah, gravel is kind of like a combination of road and mountain biking. After retiring, definitely spent a lot of time on the mountain bike. And then I was riding and riding and riding and I had some other friends who had retired and said, Janelle, you know, this coaching thing is great for you, but you still need to, you still need to kind of be going to events and, and, you know, kind of stay in the action. And I, and that's, and a lot of those conversations led me to gravel, um, and doing some of these kind of longer endurance gravel races. And, um, and so in 2017, I kind of got back into racing, but it was just for fun and it was a lot of fun and, um, and did a lot of that on the gravel side of things. Cool. Yeah. I will say gravel is the one fad. I'm calling everything that's not road cycling a fad, by the way. I I know non-biking is like now like a 50 year old fad. I get it. But, you know, um, you know, like cyclocross, I mean, it's still around, you know, and that's been around for a hundred years in Europe, but it only really hit here as like a popular thing, maybe what, 10 years ago or so or a little longer. Yeah. But I think, I think this one is is the one that I look at and go, I, you know, maybe I would try it. You know what I mean? Because it seems, you know, I did ride mountain bikes in the early 90s before suspension, which is why I still don't want, really want to ride them now. Uh, even now that they have suspension, I should probably try it. But um, no, it is the most like interesting one to me. Now, do you uh, what do you do most most frequently now? Do you do more gravel, more road, more mountain? What's the most common type of riding that you that you do like on a day to day basis? Uh, probably mountain the most. Um, but I think now being in Bend, um, I'll. I'll probably do gravel the most once uh, we get back into the spring. But I think for winter time, from what I understand from people who live here, friends, we can still mountain bike for a lot of the winter. So when we're not on skis, we can be on the trails. And I don't know, the road, you know, I, I want to make you feel a little bit better here, Jason. But for the for me, the road, oh, when I get on my road bike, it's like the best thing in the world. You know, like I love my mountain bike. I love my gravel bike. And I think that I actually ride them more. But when I get on my road bike, it's just so relaxing and easy. I feel so at home on my road bike. And it's probably the best to go out. And if you want to spend some, you know, quiet time with yourself, because you don't have to think yeah. too much on the road bike. No. Um, or if you want some quality time with a friend and you really want to just talk all day long kind of a thing, that's another great time to just be on the road bike. And yeah. um, from a coaching and camps perspective, I love road camps. Um, one, because I think a lot of what I hope to do with riders or with, with people is to help them feel confident when they're out on their bikes and the road is a funny place, right? You know, we're all drivers or most people are drivers. And so, you know, that it's kind of, you're, you know, playing with fire a little bit to be out there on your road bike. But I think that, you know, there's risk and reward in everything. Right. And so if, if you love riding a road bike, then you should be able to do it with confidence and, and a sense of, of safety while also being realistic and realizing that you're taking risks. But anyway, yeah, from a camping perspective, I love to be on the road um, because of all the community that you can build. And then gravel, um, I, you know, I've, I feel like the gravel side of things, it's all about the adventure. 
And you can get places on your gravel bike that you could never get on a road bike. And, and it's so neat. There's so much of our country where that is, has these gravel roads that people, you, you get into these tiny nooks and crannies that you would never get to in your car because, you know, people just don't drive dirt roads or whatever in their cars as much. And, and yet, you know, it's, you're covering more ground than you would on a mountain bike and doing it in groups. And it's, it's awesome. I I love gravel adventuring. Your passion is infectious. (laughs) I'm like, sounds awesome. Yeah, I think the thing for me that I love about the road is is just the it's sort of like pure speed feeling, right? Like it's like the transfer of power. Like if you have a good bike, most a lot of people have never ridden a good bike and they don't understand what it's like to ride like a racing bike or something that's, you know, stiff and light and like can accelerate like super quickly and how it feels to just, you know, fly you know cruise around it is nice but yeah the traffic element is uh does add an element of risk to it um but you know there are those people like maybe jeff for example who seem to break bones a lot while they're doing uh gravel or 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 you know mountain biking so i don't know you know there's there's risk factors with everything you know to do with with every kind of cycling obviously there's a different risk factor and you just have to find that comfort level my my goal is to uh you know just make sure that I break a different bone each time. You know, <laughs> right. It's really just reinforcing things. That's right. They get, they grow back stronger. So, you know, it's all good. Um, Janelle, you mentioned, well, we know that you started biking down in Southern California and you just mentioned something about Bend. How did you end up coming from Southern California up to Bend, Oregon? Oh, wow. Well, it's, it's been a wild ride. Um, I I left San Diego. So I lived in San Diego for 15 years and I left San Diego trying to figure out where I wanted to be next. And so I spent some time in Colorado and I loved it, um, but was still trying to figure things out. And so I went back to California and I ended up settling in, in a small town called Newberry Park, which is kind of on the Northwestern end of the Santa Monica mountains. And um, all three of you probably are semi-familiar with the, that, that area. So it turned out to be a fantastic place to live if, if you like the outdoors. It, and you, it's so weird like because you're so close to L.A., but you have these amazing canyons to ride on your road bike or these amazing roads and trails to hike and ride on your gravel or mountain bike. And the ocean's there. Anyway, it's a wonderful place. But... Um, this was just over three years ago that I settled in there and met my partner, Eric, who is an outdoor adventurer and um, is also a former um, professional athlete, but he raced motorcycles. And, um, and he got into cycling when he retired from his racing career. And so when we met, we both started talking about Bend because he had been here racing mountain and cross and I had been here racing on the road And I had just always had this dream of splitting time between Southern California and Bend. I just fell in love with this town. And I really probably shouldn't talk about it too much because um, I'm told if you've lived here for a long time that you got to stop talking about how great it is so people don't realize, you know, anyway, it's getting, I uh, I think the population has gone from like 8,000 to 100,000 
in 20 years. So, um, uh, uh, it's anyway, so, but we fell in love with Bend both separately and, uh, and then started just talking about relocating here someday. And that schedule between last December and now, you know, quickly went from being a 15 year plan to a five week plan. (laughs) And, um, in the summer we came up here in our RV and did a, you know, 10 day camping trip where we worked remotely and then rode our bikes and hiked and just did all this uh, amazing stuff. And then started looking at, uh, places to live and said, okay, we got to do this and, and might as well do it now because of a lot of other factors. I mean, like even the housing market, you know, it turned out to be a good time to sell your home and and relocate, (laughs) maybe not the best time to buy, but you know, (laughs) we, um, it's, it's awesome that the community, Eric and I were just talking about this last night, you know, we're out and about in the community and you can just tell that everyone has spent the day outside you know, we went to the grocery store and it's like, everybody's kind of still in their adventure clothes. And, and you could probably put most people down in the middle of nowhere and they'd be able to, you know, instead of finding their way home, they're actually just going to go deeper into the woods to go and do more fun things. So it's a really neat community from that outdoorsy kind of standpoint. And then also from that community standpoint, you know, I lived in San Diego for 15 years where it always felt like they ha- you have these little towns, right? Where you have this kind of neat community feel to them. I lived in Hillcrest for a long time in, in San Diego and I loved living there. Um, and I missed that kind of like central town feeling and Bend has that, you know, and um, people, I mean, since we've lived here, I guess, six, seven weeks now. And, you know, we're already hooked into different organizations and, um, and getting involved in the community, even though it's, you know, all done remotely. And I don't know, it's just, it's awesome. It's to be a, to be a part of that. And, um, so there's this winter thing that happens here too. And, um, I think our biggest problem right now in life is having a garage big enough to hold all the toys that we need. <laughs> it's starting to feel like a bad, like a bad fifties low budget sci-fi movie. Like you all go up there and you and the, like these creatures capture you and put you in pods <laughs> and you all turn into like Bendites. I don't know. But like Jeff, <laughs> our friend Colby, who uh, would have been a few episodes ago. Um, I don't know. I, everyone seems to be, uh, at least all my adventure friends seem to be uh, uh, creeping away up to Bend. You're next, right, Severia? Are you next? Trying. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> I'm sort of the same way. It's like, you know, I've been here and I've been to Ben enough times where every time I'm like, I could live here. Like, we could, this could be home for sure. Like, we could totally live here. Um, but, yeah, maybe. We'll see. The only thing with me is I think as like a native Californian, um, winter has always been on my terms. I've never had to deal with winter on like nature's terms. So I don't know. So you (laughs) go up, you're like, I could live here. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. But it's spring or it's fall or it's summer. You know, I haven't had to deal with snow when it's when it's when unless it's like I wanted to deal with snow. Yeah. Well, I'll let you know. Just uh, give me a call in uh, six, seven months. How long is it going to be winter here? It's longer than you think. So Janelle, um, I know you mentioned that you are a sponsored live athlete. So as a, you know, as an athlete, as somebody who like kind of lives in a, the professional word, world, both former pro and now as a coach, um, I'm just curious, like when you choose to work with a brand, like, I mean, I, so I know of live and love them, but I would love to hear just, and for our listeners who don't know what live cycling is, I would just love for you to share 
who Liv is, what makes you, you know, like, and your relationship with them. Anyways, just share the love. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I love to share the love of Liv, uh, especially. So um, uh, thanks. Yeah. So I, so Liv is a women's bike brand, bike gear, everything. Like if you want to ride any sort of bike and we're talking towny cruiser or an e-bike or super crazy race bikes on any discipline, um, Liv has you covered. Uh, and it, I mean, from head to toe to, you know, anyway, to blinky lights, you know, like they've got everything. <laughs> um, and they, they were born out of this realization that in the cycling industry that a lot of brands just expected women to fit on men's on men's stuff or in men's gear, uh, you know, and they would just, you know, make it smaller, the whole shrink it and pink it thing. Right. And, um, so a woman, uh, named Bonnie too, uh, was working for giant bicycles. So giant bicycles is a super old bicycle brand out of Taiwan. And they, they, she was trying to do this challenge in Taiwan with the founder of giant bicycles. And she couldn't find, even though she worked for, you know, for giant bicycles, like the biggest bicycle company in the world, she couldn't find everything that she needed. And she was like, okay, enough. I'm going to make, I'm, I, we need to make a, we need to make a brand, a company that is all about uh, women's cycling. And so she did. And I first got introduced to live. Well, I, I remember when they were starting to break into the pro peloton. So there was, you know, like a, a women's pro team that was on uh, giant bikes and suddenly they were on live bikes. And I, so I had definitely seen the name, but it was in 2015, I believe, when a bunch of really cool things happened at once. Um, I was doing a women's, uh, I was doing a women's clinic for a group called the Network for Advancing Athletes, a friend and former teammate had started this to get more women athletes networking together. And a really cool thing. Anyway, and so we were there in Newberry Park uh, for a bike event, a really cool foundation called the Mike Nosco Foundation and does this ride. And I can talk about that for hours too. Um, uh, anyway, we were there doing this women's clinic for the Mike Nosco Memorial Ride. And someone said, oh, you know, Liv, Liv is going to sponsor um, our, our event, our, our clinic, and they're also going to sponsor an, another route uh, as a part of this event that is a little less crazy than that like big crazy route. Like so that more riders who, whether they were women, men or whatever, like um, that they could do the shorter route and it would be less intimidating. Anyway, so that's when I first got introduced to Liv. And it turned out that when I moved to Newbury Park in 2017, I lived two miles away from, from their U.S. headquarters. So it was like starting racing bicycles because I met this world-class coach who lived two miles from me. And then I moved to Newbury Park and I get in, you know, to work with Liv. And I've worked with a lot of brands in the cycling and outdoor industry and a lot of really, really great brands. But holy smokes, like Live is incredible. I think Giant is incredible as well. Um, but Live is so completely committed to doing, um, to getting more women on bikes and for to make incredible bikes and gear 
um, for women. They, I feel like they talk the talk and they walk the walk and um, they don't cut corners and it's awesome. And when I started talking with them about working together, my mission as a coach who runs camps was really well aligned with their mission to try to get more women on bikes and to become confident cyclists where on whatever surface they were riding on. And so it's been awesome. I've done events with them. We've done uh, camps together. We did a beginner women's camp um, in Ventura in 2019. And, uh, we launched a gravel camp that then, uh, uh, we did a test run of, and, uh, and then it was the, the full one was scheduled for this back past October. So that obviously got put on the back burner for now, but they, they're, they're incredible. I love all the people there and I, I love my bikes and I love the gear and it's just, it's a great thing to be involved in. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, one question, just as someone, because I think you're the first uh, former pro cyclist we've had, and particularly as a woman. Obviously, even like the men's pro cycling, the model, the business model is ridiculous and completely untenable. But I, I've heard a lot about, I mean, you hear, when I do hear about it, unfortunately, it seems like everything I hear about women's pro cycling is how it's always struggling and it's how it's trying to find a foothold and find some level of stability. Do you have any thoughts on, on what could you know fix that, how it could become better? like how it can actually become you know because it feels like you'll have like the Amgen Tour of California and like every three runnings of it they'll have a women's event right they, they don't I don't maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm unfairly no. criticizing it but I seem to recall like going to the women's event one year and next year it not being there yep. you know I mean do you think what do you think is the path forward for women's professional cycling does it need to maybe move off on its own a bit more and like ditch the UCI what are your thoughts on that Great question. And this is an area that I used to uh, work in a lot. I, I helped found a, a, a group called the Women's Cycling Association, which has since folded into other people's efforts. But but that was those were all the issues that we were looking at. And um, you're right, the model is broken. What is the right answer? Um, I think it's a combination of having, uh, you know, the UCI has to set the standard for how races are run and for how teams are, how, how teams are managed. You know, if you, I think, you know, for the majority of my career, I would say that the average uh, cyclist in the women's Peloton was probably paid, you know, $2,500 a year, 2,500, like just with two zeros. That's, you can't, I mean, can't even I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, right? But, but these athletes are devoting their lives to it and, um, and trying to make it work. So what's the solution? Um, one, I think some of it has to come from the governing body uh, where they set a minimum salary, where they set a, 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 they set and also hold races to a certain amount of um, television um, or some sort of a model of, of showing the racing. So the Colorado classic actually is a very interesting race to look into. And they had a men's race for a number of years and then had a, you know, similar to what the tour of California did where they had a women's race that was like three days and then maybe one day. And then they kept on trying to do more and more and more. And then they eventually said, you know what, we're getting so much more. We have so much more potential with the women's side that we're just going to have a women's race. And so they figured out a way to, they just have a professional women's race. Um, they provided stipends to teams 
in order to help them spread the word on the race and, and do some marketing around going to the race. So then you were hearing, you know, the voices of the teams. They did a really good job highlighting the different personalities that were coming to the race, right? Because as a fan, you need to know what you're watching, right? You need to know the people that you're involved with. So you have to create these personalities. Um, and then they televise the race live by using some cool cell phone technology, right? So they didn't have to have a, uh, a, a repeater plane. Is that how it normally works that you have a repeater mm-hmm. plane flying over and then you have all these, uh, you, the, or helicopters. Yeah. You're, it's always the helicopter shot in tour de France or, or in the big tours. Yeah. So I, and I think that they had to have, you have to have a plane to send these. So if you have this, the helicopters too, and in Colorado in the summer, the, the daily thunderstorms kind of messes with that, right? So they came up with a way to do it via cell phone technology and, um, and having, you know, so that it would, the costs were a little bit lower, but they had two or three hours of coverage most of the days. Yeah. And anyway, so I think some of it has to come from the top down where the UCA is, UCI is mandating these things. Um, and then, but then to some, to some degree, if they're not willing to do it, if you guys then get out of there, you know, and take, and it's like what happened in tennis, right. Um, so many years ago when the women weren't giving, you know, getting the same prize purses as the men and they weren't getting, um, you know, access to the same tournaments as the men and, and all this stuff, they were like, okay, we're going to do our own tour. Yeah, they had Bill, huge, Billie Jean King, right. That right. Billie Jean King. Creating the, yeah. Yeah. She is, uh, in, 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 I mean, what she was able to do um, was incredible, but they also had, I think it was Virginia Slims jump in and, um, and fund it, right? So you need <laughs> right. a <company>. Tobacco. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe tobacco, not tobacco. Exactly. Maybe not tobacco for right. cyclists, right? I don't, I don't know, know if that's a great fit, but. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so it, obviously it, it takes money, but then it also takes someone to be able to tell the story and do it in a way that, you know. I don't, it, yeah. if, if you could break away from the UCI and just do a women's tour yeah. worldwide, it would be, it would be incredible. Yeah. And just two things to clarify, UCI's uh, Union Cyclist International. It's sort of like, like the sports union for all the cyclists. It's like the NFLPA or the baseball, major league baseball players union. And they're kind of like a, kind of the governing body. And then just so you know, the repeater planes, just so people get it, they have cameras on the back of the motorcycles. So you need planes flying above them. So the signal, the video signal from the motorcycles will get to the planes. Sorry. I just felt like people might, you and I get it, but, but our audience might have no idea what we're talking Thanks. about. Yeah, no. <laughs> so as someone that's both had personal coaches and, you know, and coaches that led you into becoming a professional and now someone who is a coach, how do you think people can benefit from a coach? Like everyone from someone that has no interest in being pro to someone that wants to be pro? Yeah, great question. It, and it's a strange thing because as kids, I think a lot of people play sports where you have a coach, right? And then you get to be in your 20s or your 30s and you occasionally hear say someone, oh, I've got a running coach or I've got a this coach or strength coach. And you're like, why? You, don't you work? Like, what do you do? Um, anyway, I, so this whole idea of having a personal coach um, no matter what it's for, like it can be a career coach. It can be in a sport of some sort. Um, I think it's brilliant. One, um, it allows, so one of the things is if you are an adventurous person or if you're an athletic person, um, 
it really helps to have a goal to work towards. I think a lot of us probably through COVID have found that we need some sort of an outlet, right? Something to aim for, shoot for, because we're just going through the same, you know, Groundhog Day in within our homes um, over and over and over again. Um, so having a goal for something is great. And I mean, I, I know, you know, Jeff has this six peak challenge thing that you can do all over the country. Is it right now, Jeff? Is that? Well, yeah, we have eight challenges in different places around the country. Yeah. And so, it, so if I were a person who were going to do something like the six peak challenge, um, I, even if I'm a healthy and outgoing person, I bet I can find a coach who is you know, somehow into hiking, who is going to help prepare me for the actual physical challenge of, of hiking, um, of whatever it is, who's going to prepare me mentally for it, who's going to prepare, prepare me from a fueling and nutrition standpoint, from a gear standpoint, like, what do you need to be able to do this? Um, and, and then also you just have a person who helps hold you accountable. You know, I feel like everyone can relate to this idea of, oh, you know, it's the start of the new year and I set goals for myself for health every single January 1st, right? And I sign up for the gym and I do all this stuff. And then after a couple of weeks, like your regular routines kind of take over and you forget about those things. But if you're, if you have a coach who you pay, you, you have someone who can kind of be this outside perspective on how you're doing and working towards these goals. And so that's what I do for cyclists. And I find that, uh, that the people that I work with, you know, um, sometimes they have very specific goals that they're training for, and sometimes they don't. But when we have our weekly check-ins, uh, it's always a nice way to just have a, a frank conversation about how things are going. And sometimes these conversations that we have, don't have anything to do with the bike or we talk for a half an hour and 28 minutes was about what's going on in life. And two minutes is about, Oh yeah, by the way, you should go out for some, you know, this in your training and whatever. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a pretty spectacular way to, uh, kind of, um, be able to pay attention to yourself and, 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 uh, take care of yourself. I think. Is there such thing as a not eating carbs coach that you know of? Is that like a, okay. Well, now yeah. we got to talk about food and carbs are not bad. Just want to say <laughs> 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 if I had a sign to put on my lawn about uh, food, it would be carbs are not bad. <laughs> I, I love carbs. carbs are your friend. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Oh, I love them. That's the problem. <laughs> That's all I want to eat. That's the problem. But I think, yes, the answer to your question is yes, Jason. There's there's a coach okay. out there for you. I figured there was, but, you know. Uh, I think the idea of having a coach is brilliant because not only do you, you – know, I mean, it's like you have somebody who's holding you accountable and you have somebody who can give you sort of a – a, you know, kickstart what you what your goal is, you know, help you get there a little bit faster, perhaps. And also you have some skin in the game. You know, it's not like because like a lot of the information you could get a book from the library or you could look, you Google it and you can find a lot of great information on how to train and how to eat and how, what kind of gear you need or whatever. But um, when you've, you know, you've made a, a payment to somebody to help you then, you know, you're like, well, I'm committed. I don't want to waste that money. I want to make sure that it's applied. Whereas if I just look, Google it and I look at it and I go, oh, that's kind of cool. And I may or may not do it, you know. <laughs> 
Right. Yes, totally. Uh, when I first started coaching, I really didn't, because I was starting so early in my career, I didn't want to charge people. And my coach Arnie said, no, people will value you, what you're doing for them more if you charge them something like they have. And there were a couple of people that I was doing an exchange thing with and a freebie here and there. And I, there wasn't a long sustaining relationship. And, and it's, it's interesting. And I think about coaching I think about the athlete as being the boss too, right? They tell me, here's what I want to be able to do. And then it's my job to get them there. But I'm also the person who can say, hey, you said you wanted to be able to, you know, do X, Y, Z. What you're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis is not helping you get there. So like, you, uh, you know, I'm also that reality check too. <laughs> Yeah, I was just gonna say, the, I think the accountability piece is huge, just having that check in and having a plan. And um, when we were doing Ironmans, we always had a coach and people and I think team, that's one of the things that team and training sort of taught us was like the importance of having a plan to get to your goal. Um, and we did the Ironmans, and people were like, I could never do an Ironman. I was like, No, if I can do one, I promise anyone can do one. But you need like six or eight months and you need to be willing to do 11 workouts a week. And you probably want to find somebody who's going to get you there, you know, and like in a you know, competitive goal is different than a finishing goal and all of those things. So, um, but we, I mean, there's no way we could have done that without a coach and without a plan and without sort of like, so, you know, and that's somebody's job, right. To get you to sort of tape, you know, build you up and then like recover you and build you up and recover you and give you that confidence that when you show up on game day, that you'll actually be able to do it. Yeah, totally. And it's neat. I mean, um, what you've been able to do with adventurous too. I feel like there's, this is, this is all just so good for the outdoor world. Right. Because you also, um, I was, I was riding with, um, gosh, was it with Tina? Tina Brubaker? Yeah. We, and she was, um, yeah, we went out for a mountain bike ride before, you know, uh, while the trails up high were still open. I don't know. They might be too snowy now, but, um, but she was telling me, she was talking about what you do with your adventurous weekends. And, uh, and I was like, wait a second, I think I'm supposed to talk to someone about <laughs> something who does something like that. But you, but it's so great, right? Because a lot of people don't realize that they're going to fall in love with one of these activities, right? And you're exposing them to all those activities. So you've got this, it's like a marketing funnel in a way, right? Like you've got this, you've got this exposure to all these different activities up here and then you figure out what you want. And the, the next step is like, okay, if you figure out what you really enjoy, one, you got to start connecting with people in your community and then connect with a coach who can help, you know, bring you yep. down, get you to where you need. I mean, it's a, it's, and I mean, at the end of the day, if we all just have more people outside and adventuring yep. in whatever capacity that is, it's, it's a great thing. Yeah. And I'm a big, I mean, on that note, I'm a big believer in like that education and that teaching piece behind it. Right. Because anyone can go get a mountain bike and rent a mountain bike and go on a dirt trail if you know how to ride a bike and ride it, but to do it and have fun and to do it and not be scared and to have sort of those, and sometimes they're even like these simple tips that like, you're like, oh, that makes such a big difference in my comfort level. So putting the education and the why behind what you're doing, you know, I think is so important to that journey and sort of that empowering and like figuring it out. So, and I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you hooked up with Tina. So after, after the call is gonna be like, I need to hook you up with Tina. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Janelle, you had mentioned earlier how, you know, as 
you know, kids growing up, they're used to having coaches, you know, all, you know, playing little league or soccer or whatever it might be and or, or music lessons and so forth. And as adults, a lot of times we don't think about that. You know, we think, well, I'm I've done with that. I've moved on. But oh, my gosh, how powerful it can be. So I'm I'm the gears are turning in my head because I think I need some mountain bike coaching. <laughs> so maybe I won't break so many bones. And are yeah. you first, are Janelle, are you first aid trained? If you're going yeah. to, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just so we know. Okay. Okay. I was, I was thinking to bring like the different podcasts full circle. Maybe we need Janelle to coach us for the big lonely. Mm, yes. Do you know, do you know Jesse Janelle? Do you know him and Ben? No, we have not met yet, oh. but I was listening to part of the podcast that you guys recorded. Um, and so, and this community is, you know, small enough. So hopefully we'll be able to, to, but yeah, so this, but I don't know much about the big lonely. I just heard about it. It's, you know, it's like 300 miles around Bend. Right. right? I think yeah. like, uh, yeah, you know, a little bit of packing, everything. So Basically, you're yeah. it's self-supported bike packing, and you could do it in. Two, I think the 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 finisher, the winner this year, did it in less than forty eight hours, and uh, and then the the last person to finish did it in five days. So you have there's no real time limit, and so um, and the idea is just to get people out there, you know, and it's more of a personal challenge than you know there is a race element, but there's not like a prize or anything for it, and so. Um, I was I talked to a buddy of mine. I'm like, hey, we should totally do this next year, you know, but is that crazy or what? And I think, you know, having a coach or somebody who can help us like this is the goal. October of 2021. Uh, what are the things I need to be doing, you know, now and in December and January and so on to help me, you know, prepare for that? Yeah, yeah, it's a perfect. This is a perfect kind of uh, case study or, uh, <laughs> case case study. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know, a use, uh, yes. Yes. use for this sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, yeah. So the answer is, yeah, you can do it for sure. You can. <laughs> is it is it gravel or mountain? Do you know? Yes. Yes, yes. Yes and yes. Yeah, there's some single, <laughs> there's like a lot of, uh, I think it's like and road. 60% single track or 40, 50% single track. And there's gravel road and there's a little bit of pavement. And yeah, it's kind of a, a whole runs the gamut. I'll, I'll do like the, the 10 miles of road and you guys do the rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we could do a relay, you know. We'll do That's it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. No, nothing personal, guys. But I'm talking about trying to get a girl crew together to do it for fun. Ooh. Ooh, then maybe, Joe, maybe we can race each other. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll kill us, Severia. Yeah. I think you'll, you'll we'll crush have us, more but, fun, yeah. that's for sure. If I don't yeah. kill myself first. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Jeff's going to crash in the first 10 miles, so then it's going to be me for like 290 miles. Oh, okay, gonna... so in my defense, the last time I broke a bone on my mountain bike, I was bike bikepacking, and I did get back on my bike with broken bone and continue to ride. So, so there. And, and, and I, I tease Jeff out of love, as you know, and, and to give Jeff even more credit, like a week and a half later, he did the Wonderland Trail. That's right. Yeah. You know, with a pretty heavy pack with me and, and, and Derek, which we've documented in the past. So, so Jeff is a badass, but he does crash and break things. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, for sure. Kudos for that. <laughs> so, Janelle, I know um, 
for both of us. 2020 derailed some of our event plans. Um, so what does 2021 look like for you? Oh, yeah, it has been a heck of a year. Um, we all know this. Um, so things are still up in the air. This January would be when I normally uh, run my annual base miles road training camp in Borrego Springs, hashtag Borrego camp. Um, <laughs> um, but it's, you know, those the Borrego camp can be 60 people or so per day riding together and it involves people from com- coming up sorry, it involves people um, coming from all over the country. So it really, I don't feel good about making that um, uh, sort of, uh, I don't feel good about having an event like that right now and and showing up in a small community um, and doing our thing. So we're, I'm going to be doing that remote. um, And uh, I'll have some information on my website, JanelleCycling.com about what's going to happen with Borrego camps and, um, and hopefully we'll be able to keep the spirit alive because I do believe that the community aspect needs to live on despite not being all together um, in the way that we have in the past. Um, And then I'm working with giant and live on again, getting to events when it's safe to have events. So as of right now, I'm signed up to do a new gravel event in uh, Whitefish, Montana called The Last Best Ride. One of my uh, friends and former, also a former pro is putting that on. And uh, so I'll be in Montana, hopefully at the end of August. And uh, Live is Live and Giant are a big sponsor of Rebecca's Private Idaho, which is a, a you can either do a one day or a three day gravel event, and it's awesome. And I did both of Rebecca's remo- remote uh, events this year, and even though it was remote, it was great. So I'll still be doing that. Um, and I'm still, you know, coaching athletes, but I'm also getting out, branching out into something new. I just started working for a company. Uh, startup actually in the fintech space, the financial technology world, um, called Hustle Flywheel. And it's really cool to be involved with a totally new industry. Um, I think I thrive on new experiences. And, um, and our aim at Hustle Flywheel is to democratize the startup world because if you know anything about startups and running businesses, you know, finding money to run your business and to actually be very successful is really challenging and it's even more challenging if you don't fit a certain profile. And uh, so we look to give, um, to find great companies uh, that are doing online businesses uh, funding in a different model. We're kind of breaking the venture capital mold and doing things differently. And uh, it's been really exciting um, getting started with that. So I'm juggling a lot of things and still just trying to be outside uh, as much as possible. Sounds exciting. Very cool. Well, we will have all that information in the show notes. But again, Janelle, how do people find you? And we will make sure that this is in the show notes as well. Um, you can find me, uh, anything related to camps or coaching at JanelleCycling.com. Uh, but it's probably easier to, uh, catch me on a day-to-day basis on Instagram at Janelle Spilker and on Twitter at Janelle Spilker as well. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Yes, you guys. Finally another roadie on the show. Hey, come to Bend and play anytime. Um, I I think between Jeff and I, we can host everybody. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media. 
on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On our next episode, we have climber, guide, and winner of the PLA Dior, four years of high school French, and that's the best I can do, all-around awesome guy, Chris Wright. As always, thanks for listening. 